I think it's tempting for all of us to sometimes live just for the moment. Live just, just the day that is present and think of our days as disconnected from the days that have gone before and the days that come after. Perhaps never thinking about the consequences of our actions or any long-term goals. We tend to live just for the moment. But of course, New Year changes that. We begin to think about the year past and the year forward. What have we done this past year? How have we failed? How have we succeeded? Have we progressed? Have we advanced specifically with the Christian life? Are we growing in holiness and godliness? Are we seeking the Lord more than we did the, the year past? And it causes us to think and resolve and think about what we could change. Well, Scripture also does not encourage us to live simply for the moment. Rather, Scripture views life, and here in Hebrews, he views life as a race. A race with a definite starting point and also a finish line. And there's exertion, there's, there's work in between. There's a race to be run. And so I want to look at this passage this morning as encouragement, as we look to the year ahead to see life as a race with work to be done. We are to run with endurance the race set before us. And first, as we look at this passage, we have to note that there's one main command in this passage. So the first point here is the one main command, which is to run the race with endurance. You'll see that at the end of verse 1. After he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is the main idea that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across. And indeed, throughout this book, he's calling the, the, the readers to run with endurance to keep their confidence in Christ firm to the end, to live out this Christian life faithfully to the end. So he says here, let us run. I've been going lately to the Eastling Center to do some exercising, and on the third floor they have this running track. And there's four lanes that go around on this running track. One of them is labeled wheels, in case someone is there with a wheelchair. One of them's labeled walk, then there's a jog lane, and then a run lane. And what the writer is telling us here is that, spiritually speaking, we need to put ourselves in the run lane. We're not to be walking in the Christian life. We're not to be jogging. Rather, we are to run with endurance this race that is set before us. We're to move rapidly exerting the most force that we possibly can to grow in godliness, to live for Christ till the end. He notes that life is a race. Let us run with endurance the race. And that word there, race in Greek, agon, kind of reminds us of our word agony because that's where our word comes from. There is this sense within it of, of striving, of struggle, of of fight, of a contest that we are in. We are in this race and there's much, much exertion to be had in this race. And there's a prize in view. It's a contest that we're aiming towards the prize. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 24 to 26, Paul also uses this same metaphor of a race for the Christian life. It says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control, 
lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So scripture views the Christian life as a race. That we're to exert energy, we're, we're to make it to the finish line in order to win the prize of eternal life. Now, he also notes that we must run this race with endurance. Endurance. Which means the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. We know that in the race of the Christian life, there are difficulties. And we'll see some of the obstacles as we go on in this passage. But there are trials. There, there's, there's pain involved in a race. As a runner runs the race, he might feel his muscles aching and, and his labored breathing. But he needs to push through that. Push it out of his mind and still strain forward. And we know that the Christian life, if God tarries or if God gives us many years of life, it can be a long race. It's not just a 50 meter dash and we, we go quickly for a little while and then it's done. Rather, it's more like a marathon that we have to endure for a long time, keeping up our faithfulness in Christ. Endurance, I think, is a fading virtue in our culture. Whenever we encounter the least bit of physical pain or even emotional pain, we treat these things immediately. We do everything we can to, to help ourselves. For every little pain and ache, there's a, there's a physical medication. For every emotional distress, there's therapy or psychiatric meds or even puppy rooms. We, we've lost the virtue of endurance in our culture. But this is a virtue for the Christian, to endure, to put what is hard out of our minds. Not a, not a bare stoicism, just keeping a stiff upper lip in life, but rather relying on Christ for strength and enduring through even the hard things well. We want to suffer well as Christians. So he calls us here to run the race with endurance. And he notes here that is a race that is set before us. For every Christian, there is a race. And we can't avoid it. We can't turn back. We can't run in circles. We have to run this race. It is put there by God himself. It was not ourselves who put this race before us. Not some enemy of our souls. Not, not Satan. But rather our loving Heavenly Father who bought us. He put us in this race. He set it before us. And that is great comfort that this race is put sovereignly in front of us by our loving God. He doesn't intend for us to be defeated in the race. He doesn't intend for us to be exhausted and to give up. Rather, he puts this race in our life for good purposes, our growth and his glory. So as we think about this main command here, Already, a couple questions may come up from this text that we can examine ourselves with and, and maybe how we've lived the past year and how we might live the following year with greater grace and strength. First of all, the question comes up, have we forgotten that we are in a race? Maybe we're tempted to simply forget, to get distracted from the race to turn aside from the race. We're tempted to give up in the race. We need to remember that we are in a race, that we are not just on a Sunday stroll. Rather, God has given us this race to run. We need to lift our heads. We need to see the finish line, which is glory. And we need to live life as if it is a race and strive forward, treat it like like this. Second, we might ask, are we running in the race? Are we actually running? Or are we in the walk or the jog lane? Can we increase our speed, our pace in the pursuit of godliness? We must increase our service to Christ where we are slacking and increase our devotion to him. 
Thirdly, another question is, are we really enduring? Or do we have, like verse 12 says, drooping hands and weak knees? Are we discouraged? Are we giving way under the pressures of life, even the pressures of the world, the opposition that we face? Or are we enduring? And I hope by the end of this message, this will give you encouragement that you may actually endure in this race. Now, the rest of this passage does give us encouragement around this main command. We see in verse 1, the first part, there is a crowd that is cheering us on as we run this race. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. We are surrounded as believers by a great cloud or crowd of witnesses. If we view the Christian life as a race, we know that there are some already in the bleachers who have run this race already. And they are, as it were, cheering us on, encouraging us by their example that we can look back on. Now, who are these witnesses that are being spoken of? Well, chapter 12 comes on the heels of this great chapter, Hebrews 11, where we see the the hall of faith. All these believers in the Old Testament, these people of faith, who endured much and did much for God, people like Abel and Abraham and David and the judges and Moses. He, he points them back to these examples of faith and then encourages them with this thought that all of these saints are, as it were, surrounding us, that we can't ignore them and their witness. They were witnesses. That is, they witnessed the truth of God. They witnessed God's glory. They believed his promises, and they testified to that fact by their very lives and words. And so we can look back at what they did. We see in chapter 11, verse 33 to 35, that these people did great things for God. It says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. There were great feats that these people accomplished by the grace of God through faith. But we also see in chapter 11 that they endured much suffering for God. Chapter, uh, verse 35 continues, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might raise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, he doesn't just write those things so that we would feel sorry for these Old Testament saints, but rather to point out that they were able to endure much by the grace of God. And so this encourages us in our endurance as well. When a runner hears the crowd cheering for him, he runs faster. This puts wind in our sails that there are these encouragements from saints. We as Christians living in 2023 now have a much greater cloud of witnesses that we can be encouraged by even then the, the, the people who read this epistle initially. We can look back not just at the Old Testament saints but at the New Testament apostles and even these believers here in the book of Hebrews, we can look back at 2,000 years of church history and gain encouragement from all the saints that have gone before us. I would encourage you, friends, to read Christian biographies. I just finished a couple of biographies this year, one on John MacArthur, another on Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
When we read and hear of saints who have lived well, who have lived faithfully for God, and even who have died well, that is much encouragement for us in the Lord. Like students in a classroom, when you see a student excelling in their grades, that raises the standard of excellence for everyone. When we look back at these people of the past, even the giants of the faith, we can see just how much God can use a life, how much we can do for God. Right now I'm reading about Samuel Davies, who's a fellow back in the 1700s who evangelized several villages. He saw much fruit and he had a, a lasting impact on the next generation even after he died. He was a, a minister and I have to share this story on New Year's Day, 1761. He preached on the text from Jeremiah 28 verse 16 where God says to Hananiah the false prophet that this year you shall die. Now he took that, that text and he encouraged the people to view their life as short, the brevity of life. And he told them that, that some of them likely were going to die that year. And then a month later, he himself died in February of 1761. He became a living illustration of his point. We can't make that stuff up, can you? But those stories of, of saints who have gone before us encourage us to run as they did, to endure by faith, even in our weakness. You'll notice that in verse 34 of chapter 11. These people were made strong out of weakness. Often they were not the strong and mighty and wise of the world, just like us. But God could do great things through them. So this cloud of witnesses encourages us as we run. We also see here in this passage that there are some obstacles that we're to set aside as we run this race. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. <clears throat> there are obstacles. You can't run if there's a rock in your shoe or blockades on the track or traps set out on it. There are things in the Christian life that might weigh us down or entangle us. First of all, he points out, there are weights that we are to lay aside. There are burdens that hinder us from going faster or, or forward to begin with. Now, these are not clear, blatant sins that he's talking about. He goes on to talk about sin as well. That's something we're to lay aside. But these weights are a little bit different. They're, they're things that we might burden ourselves with or that accumulate in our lives that might not be outright sin, but they are not helpful. They hinder us from running as we ought to. So we ought to pause and think sometimes, what might be some weights in our lives? Things that if we got rid of them, we could run even faster for Christ. That we could live even more devoted to him. And I don't know what those weights are in your lives. But thinking through this. Maybe, maybe it's things that distract us. Like too much entertainment. Or unnecessary pleasures. Or riches. Or social media. In a prosperous society like ours. We have many luxuries. That we can get too involved in, and they might slow us down. No, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're to not enjoy life. I would be a false teacher if I stood up here and told you that you can't enjoy food or marriage or children or fun with your family. Paul says as much in First Timothy. We are to enjoy the things God has created with thanksgiving and prayer. But often we go too far, and we forget that life is short. We begin to kick up our legs, thinking that we're already in paradise. We're, we're already home. We begin to soak in the rays. We have this illusion that we have lots of time and that there's nothing really too serious to think about in life. We need to remember we're, we're in a race. We're, we're in a battlefield. 
We can't be encumbered by all of these weights and distractions. There are lost people dying all around us. We're on a mission. We're not going to wish that we played more video games when we're on our deathbed, right? We have to consider what we're doing now. Are we running the race or are we getting distracted? We might be tempted to build our own kingdoms on earth, to take job promotions and a new house, more land, another hobby, all this self-advancement, focusing on our own kingdom. We lose focus on God's kingdom, which we are to seek first in life. That could be a weight. It could be simply mental and emotional burdens that you carry. Maybe it's guilt from your sins that you haven't cast upon the Lord. You're not trusting fully in His grace in Christ. Maybe it's all kinds of worries and anxieties that mount up in your life. You, you can't run well with joy and endurance if you're constantly weighed down by a heavy heart. And so you're to cast your burdens on the Lord, cast these weights upon Him. God is so gracious to say to us, give that burden to me. We can't carry it. He can carry it. There might be all kinds of other weights. And I pray that God would show us these things and maybe we can discuss them. Maybe discuss at lunch the weights that you've already given up to encourage others. But maybe discuss those things also that you see in your life that are hindrances. And we need to be honest with these things and see them for the evil that they are because they do hinder us from running faithfully for Christ. And notice here, friends, he doesn't say just lay aside some weights. He says lay aside every weight. Maybe there are some weights we would like to coddle and hold on to. I'll get rid of this thing, but this thing over here, I really enjoy that one. But we need to be honest and, and look at these things head on and lay them aside. Every weight. When you come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He makes a claim on your entire life because He is worthy of your whole life. Nothing kept back from our Savior. He also tells us here that we must lay aside every sin, sin that clings so closely. We know that as Christians, we are still wrestling with sin. We have indwelling sin. Sometimes we succumb to sin and it tightly controls us or easily ensnares us. It can cling to us so closely. Maybe there are besetting sins, particular sins that just seem to pull more weight in our lives, that we are more given to, more tempted to. Everyone's going to be different in that way. But we have sins that harass us more easily and entangle us. Satan's desire that our, our sin would entrap us and enslave us so that we would not run with endurance. Galatians 5.17 reminds us that there are these desires of the flesh raging against the spirit to keep us from doing the good we want to do. Romans 7.21, Paul even said that when he wanted to do right, evil lies close at hand. Hebrews 3.13 reminds us that sin is so deceitful and it can crop up in our lives and actually cause us to turn away from the Lord. If we allow sin to cling to us and we're not regularly confessing and repenting, if we allow ourselves to drift into unrepentant sin and we turn away from Christ, we will not finish the race. We will not win the prize. Rather, we will enter into eternal damnation. And so this is so important to understand that the Christian is to be one fighting sin. Not that we are perfect, but we are fighting. We are striving. We are putting sin to death increasingly. And if, if we are called to do this, friends, we know that God will empower us to do it. You can, by God's grace, 
set aside sin, even when it feels like it's clinging so closely. We need to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We need to know that, as Galatians 5.16 says, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This sin is like a lion outside ready to pounce on us, but we can fight it by God's grace, by the word of God and, and his means that he's given to us. We can come to Christ for fortification against the attacks of sin. We can come for present help to him when we're tempted, and we can come to him for cleansing always when we fail. But we are to set aside and do this continually, setting aside the sin which clings so closely in order to run this race of faith. Now, as we consider running and putting aside these, these weights and sins, and as we are encouraged by the cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, we need to remember one absolutely essential thing, friends. If we miss this one thing, we have no hope to run the race. If we miss this, it's like coming to the racetrack and forgetting your running shoes at home. We need to understand what he says here in verse 2 to 3. That we are running this race, not in our own strength, but rather looking to Jesus Christ. We are to fix our eyes upon him. He talks about here that the one whom we fix our eyes on in verses 2 to 3. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. <clears throat> if you try to run simply as a duty, if you hear this command and strive in your own strength, you will surely find that there is no power for the race. Rather, you will devolve into bare legalism. The power to run comes through Christ and his grace. It comes through beholding Christ, fixing our eyes on him as our savior and our example. There's a little poem that runs like this. It says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Friends, it says we meditate on the gospel. It says we look to Jesus Christ, that we have strength for the race of faith. He is our strong and steady anchor of the soul, as we sang earlier. We see here that he is our strength as our savior, as the one who has founded and will perfect our faith. We see that he's our example as one who has already endured hostility and so acts as an example to us. But note first, that word there, looking to Jesus, looking, really means to fix one's eyes on trustingly. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to gaze upon him. We're to take time to behold him, to contemplate him. As it says in verse 3, to consider him. And this is really what the writer of Hebrews has been doing all throughout this letter for these people. He's been fixing their eyes on Jesus, who is better than anything else. He is God Most High, who's come to earth as the climactic revelation of God. He is the Lord who is now crowned with glory and honor, having come to earth and suffered in flesh and blood for his people in order to redeem us by his one and only sacrifice upon the cross. We're to look to him for our strength. We're to consider him. We're to soak him in. We're to fix our eyes upon him, like staring at a painting in a gallery for a while. While other people even are rushing by, we need to be those who gaze upon Jesus and gaze and gaze again 
We need to meditate on Christ and the gospel about him, that good news which speaks of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. We're to look at him in his word, in worship, in prayer, and all of that trustingly. This word has the sense of like a child looking to their father or mother trustingly, fixing our eyes on Jesus by faith, trusting in him, depending upon him. If you were going on a backpacking or horseback riding trip and you had no experience, let's say you have one leader in the group, would you not watch that leader? Would you not follow their trail wherever they go and also trust in them to get you back home in one piece? That's how we're to treat our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to look to him as our savior, as our example and trust in him, gaze upon him. It says here that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the founder, first of all. Hebrews 2.10 uses the same word and says he's, he's the founder of our salvation, which is really to say the same thing here as the founder of our faith. In various translations, you'll see different words for this term here. He's the pioneer of our faith. He's the author of our faith. He's the originator of our faith. He's the one who has authored our salvation by accomplishing all that he already decreed and agreed to in the covenant of redemption. He wrote this story and then jumped into it to be its hero. He wrote this gospel story. It's all about him, his death for our sins, his resurrection. He's also our pioneer. He's blazed a trail for us, as Hebrews calls him, this forerunner who has passed through the heavens, gone before us into glory. And so we have this new and living way to God through his flesh and blood, broken and poured out for us. He's the originator, the, the source, the fountain of our salvation. We have salvation by him and him alone. We look to him by faith and we are saved. He is the one who initiates us into this faith by his own saving work. And he is also the perfecter or finisher of our faith here. That is, he brings our faith to its end, to its conclusion. In his work, in his death and resurrection, he did everything necessary to accomplish our salvation from beginning to end. And he sends us his spirit to sanctify us and grow us until the day of redemption when we will be glorified. And that is a guaranteed thing. None of his sheep will he lose on the last day, but he will raise them up. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. He is the one who sustains us, upholds us, and strengthens us and brings us to the shore of salvation. We could think of him like the captain of our ship. He's the one who delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, brought us onto his boat so we can escape from that world. And he gets us safely to the shore of heaven. And as we sail with him, we're to fix our eyes on him trustingly. In every storm of affliction, in every wave of doubt, every temptation to get in the lifeboat and row back to our old life, we're to fix our eyes on our great captain of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be strengthened as we look to him. Now, he is the one we look to as our savior, and he's all our strength as we run this race. He is the very muscle in our body. He, he's the very breath that we breathe as we run. But he is also here spoken of as our example. See, Jesus Christ also had a race to run in his life and mission, in his passion on earth. He had a race and he endured as he ran that race. You'll see that here in verse 2 and 3. You see the word endured twice. It is emphasizing here the endurance of Christ, especially in his passion. 
as he endured the cross, as he endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Jesus' life was not easy. He was opposed from beginning to end. Even as a baby, Herod the king tried to take his life, but he was preserved. And he endured throughout all the opposition he received and endured even that passion, that last week before he died. We're to look upon this and consider how Christ endured in order to gain encouragement for our endurance as well. So that, as he says in verse 3, we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So let's consider him for a moment here and how he endured. Verse 2 says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice that Jesus didn't endure simply by meditating upon the suffering that he was going through. That was not his end goal. The cross was not the finish line. Rather, the cross was like the last leg of the marathon where he pushed extra hard to cross that finish line and to win the prize. And what was the prize for Jesus Christ? It was the joy that was set before him. What is that joy that was set before Jesus Christ that would come after his sufferings upon the cross? We know that in John 17, Jesus was meditating upon the glory that he would go back to. As he came from heaven, he came from the joy of glory with the Father. He was now going to return to that after he endured the cross. It was this unspeakable joy and glory with the Father. It was his exaltation in his resurrection and ascension and receiving a kingdom and dominion over all peoples of the earth. As we even read in Philippians 2, after he became obedient to the point of death upon the cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There was there was glory, there was exaltation to come after the cross. There was also the fruit of his labors, the salvation of his people, that he would justify many. Even as Isaiah 53 is that great passage about the suffering of Christ, it ends with Christ seeing the work that he's done, rising from the dead, seeing the fruit of his labors in the salvation of many. And we see here, even in this passage, that it speaks to us of, of what Jesus entered into after the cross and the shame. It says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was a humiliation at the cross. He went down, but then he went up in glory. And he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That was his Prize. That was his joy, the joy of being again with the Father in all this radiant glory, seeing the salvation of many people from all nations. That is the joy that was set before him. And seeing this joy ahead of him enabled him to endure the cross. Of course, there were many motivations for Jesus to endure the cross. His great love for us as sinners whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world to ad adopt us into his family. That certainly was a motivation. But also this joy set before him was a great motivation as he endured the pain of the cross. We know that there was cruel physical pain ahead of him. And he knew all that he would experience the flogging, the beating, the nails, the crown of thorns, the suffocation, the stretching, the breaking of his body, the hostility, as it says, from sinners. Though he himself was innocent, 
he did not deserve the cross. Yet these Roman governors and the Jewish authorities and all the people, even his familiar friend Judas, betrayed him. There was such pain that he endured as he went to the cross and he died for our sins. There was also great spiritual and emotional suffering. That great cup of wrath that he prayed about in the garden of Gethsemane. As he considered that he was about to drink up the penalty for all of our sins. That countless multitude of people he would redeem. Well, they had a multitude of sins that had to be paid for. And so he looked at that enormous weight of the curse and wrath and judgment of God. And he sweat drops of blood. That was a great weight before him. And shame, it notes here. Despising the shame, there was great shame upon the cross. Shame like nothing else anyone has ever experienced or will experience. First of all, that was the worst humiliation you could possibly endure in the Roman world. To be murdered upon the cross. To be stripped naked and put out in, in before the public for them to see your execution. This wasn't even allowed to be performed upon Roman citizens as it was so shameful. But when we consider that it was also the, the precious only begotten Son of God who was debased to that lowest place, it makes it even more weighty. What shame that the infinitely worthy Son of God had to endure. That the treasure of heaven was made like a worm and not a man. That he was treated as forsaken by the Father, as one cursed. Though he himself did please God in everything, and he was righteous and innocent, the Father turned his face away, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a great weight of pain and shame and wrath to be endured at the cross. Yet, profoundly, what we see here is that the joy set before him allowed him to endure even all of this treatment. Do you ever wonder what it means there, despising the shame? I've often wondered that as I've, I've read this verse over and over throughout the years. Does that mean that he just, he didn't like the shame? He, he despised it in that sense? This word actually means to disregard. He disregarded the shame. As when you see something uh, of greater importance and it makes something else look of little concern. Say it was your wedding day and you were about to get married. You're looking forward to all this joy and your, your mom tells you you've got weeds in your garden. Well, those are of little concern to me right now. I have all this joy ahead of me. This is a profound thought here that though we know that weight of suffering and shame was so immense, we cannot even comprehend it. Yet, it was made as if a little concern to Jesus because of the unspeakable joy and glory that he was about to enter into. That joy was so weighty that it made the cross doable. That is why Jesus could come out from Gethsemane victoriously, submitting to the will of the Father, which was his own will. He could say to Peter, even stop and put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? It's interesting in that passage at Gethsemane. We really only hear what Jesus was saying. We only get insight into what Jesus was praying. That he was praying that if possible this cup would be taken from him. And yet, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. God, but I, I wonder, 
I wonder if there was speech from the Father at that point. And what was it? What was it that consoled him? Perhaps there were angels ministering to him like in the wilderness when he was tempted. What might have they said to him? What would they have whispered in his ear? Look, the unspeakable joy to come, Jesus. Remember the glory you are about to enter into. And friends, what must heaven be like if it makes the cross look light in comparison? It is not light. The cross was not light. But in light of this joy, Jesus endured the cross. Now all of this ought to be great encouragement for us. First of all, when we think of the cross, we remember this is the very foundation. This is the reason for our salvation. We were sinners. We were lost. We were condemned under the wrath of God. But Jesus went willingly in our place and suffered and died in order that we could be adopted into the very family of God, standing before him as his sons and daughters, justified, declared righteous in his sight. And so we are embraced by the Father through this work of Christ upon the cross that was all motivated by his love. And so this encourages us, this helps us to fix our eyes as we think about the great work that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, taking that cup of wrath, drinking it down till it was empty for our sake, for our salvation. But it also encourages us as an example. We also must suffer like Christ in, in a much smaller way, in a much easier way. We have, a, we have a very short and easy race compared to Jesus' race, but we do have a race nonetheless. And so we are to be encouraged here. If you are in this race, if you are a Christian, you're to be encouraged like Jesus was by the joy that is set before you. You have a race set before you by God, but you also have eternal joy and glory set before you because you are a fellow heir with Christ Jesus. You have a world of love to look forward to. There is trouble in this Christian life. There are many trials. There is opposition from the world. There's, the, there's our own besetting sins which cling so closely, but there is joy afterward, unspeakable and full of glory. And as Paul says, he has the same mindset that Jesus had here in this passage. Paul says in Romans 8, I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we can count our afflictions in this life as light and momentary in light of the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison ahead of us as we look to the things that are unseen and eternal. And so how do we, how do we run with joy and endurance even as we go through hardship and persecution and opposition in this life? How do we run? We fix our eyes on Jesus as he endured for the joy set before him. We endure for the joy set before us and always considering this, fixing our eyes upon Jesus' endurance at the cross. As Matt Papa says, have I forgotten the cross, my Lord, when I carry not my own? Have I forgotten the crown you bore upon your sacred head? Oh, help me not forget. Have I forgotten your hands were pierced? When I hold on to this world, have I forgotten your love so fierce, gasping for your breath? Oh, help me not forget the cross, the cross. My soul, remember this. What love, what cost. Oh, help me not forget. May God give you grace to look upon Christ, especially at the cross, and endure as he did for the joy set before him, that you would not grow weary, you would not be discouraged after a few little years on this earth. 
we will enter into eternal fellowship with our Creator. That glory, if we could see a glimpse of it like Paul did, we would count everything as so small in comparison. And friends, if you're not in this race yet, I would encourage you to start this race. And the way you start it is the same way you continue it, by looking unto Jesus, by looking to Him. Just one look at Christ, trusting in Him, believing in Him, seeing that you are a sinner before before a holy God. You deserve His wrath. You deserve His judgment. But this is exactly what Jesus came into the world to deal with upon the cross. And you can trust in His work upon the cross and His resurrection from the dead, that He would bring you to newness of life, forgiving you of all your sins, transforming you, entering you into this race that ends in eternal glory. May God give us grace to stay in the race this year till the end of this very brief life as we fix our eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and Father, Lord, we pause and we we have to consider the weight of what Jesus went through for us. Lord, and we will consider this more as we gather around your table. Lord, and we're just thankful, God, for our founder and finisher of our faith. Lord, and we pray that you would enable us to fix our eyes upon him and to endure like all the saints of old did and throughout church history and also as Jesus himself did as he disregarded the shame of the cross and was enabled to do that great work and accomplish it on our behalf. Lord, help us to look unto Jesus. Help us not to try to endure in our own strength, but always relying upon you and knowing the gospel of the grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name.